Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Freckled Foodie and Friends, a podcast focused on making healthy living approachable, hosted by yours truly, Cameron Rogers. Good morning, everyone. Happy Friday. I am so excited to share this episode with you. We are joined with Dr. Jocelyn Rainey, who is the CEO of Getting Out and Staying Out, also which we will refer to as GOSO. And before I introduce Jocelyn, I just want to give a little bit of context. Um, GOSO is a citywide nonprofit based in Harlem that has helped over 10,000 formerly incarcerated and justice-involved young men achieve education, employment, and emotional well-being. Their goal is to reduce recidivism, which is the rate which these coming out of prison and jails commit crimes again by partnering with organizations across the city to employ its members. It is an organization that my older sister is involved in, so I have attended events and learned about over the past recent years and a topic I deeply care about, which we'll dive into as we continue this conversation. But welcome, Jocelyn. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. I'm so excited to have you here. I think, I mean, you obviously are doing incredible things and I want everyone to learn more about what you're doing, but also the education behind it all. And as we, as I just mentioned before, we started recording, um, just the stigma that goes into saying you're, I I don't want to use the word criminal, but you're formally incarcerated. Um, and you know, statistics show what that impact has on the rest of your life. And I think it's a conversation that needs to be had more and more as we're starting to really kind of unwrap and put a specific lens on the mass incarceration that's happening in our country and the more and serious work that needs to be done fixing what has happened over the past decades. Absolutely. So to kick things off before we dive into this topic and GOSO itself, could you please define success for us? You know, um, for me, success is um, happiness, um, you know, living a life where the majority of time you're happy. And I feel as though, you know, I have actually um, succeeded because the majority of my life I am happy. And, you know, that doesn't mean that there aren't dark moments. You know, life is full of, you know, trauma and tragedy and difficulties and disappointments. But I think that, you know, once you understand who you are, and you understand, you know, 
what you bring to the table and what makes you happy, um, that it it gives you a freedom and a liberation that allows you to truly be able to um, succeed in all that you do. And, you know, for me, you know, there was a time when I didn't always feel happy. And that had a lot to do with my own um, insecurities and my need for acceptance. And, you know, we Mm -hmm. kind of chase after what other people are um, achieving as what we want to achieve. And Definitely. once I really looked deeply and understood like what makes me happy, what makes me, you know, where do I feel like I've succeeded and what do I need? And, you know, it's like there's a, there has to be this true um, understanding of, of you. And I, once I understood like for me, it's, it's being able to live my passions in my work and in my personal life. And um, also for me, it is like understanding, you know, what is it that, how do I want to impact, how do I want to impact lives? And I understand about myself that I want to change lives, um, whether they be, you know, in personal relationships by creating opportunities or in my work and working on things that really um, bring me fulfillment. And, you know, and I, re- I also realized that, you know, it is also very important for me to, um, to be in relationships where I can be my authentic self. Um, mm-hmm. and that I'm very authentic. I'm very transparent. Um, you know, I'm very direct. And I understand that, you know, that is not everyone's cup of tea. Um, and that means that you will not always be accepted into every situation. But for the most part, I've seen that being that person that, you know, tells it like it is that person that, um, that will talk about things in its true context has been helpful to me, both personally and professionally. And also like staying out of, you know, toxic relationships, but understanding that sometimes you're the toxic participant, right? Like even if, you, you know, it's like, and I think a lot of times we don't do that, right? We don't say like, I'm not good in this relationship. This I'm, you know, this person, I am not, I'm not good to them. I'm not good for them. And when I think about toxic relationships for me, having been married for, you know, over well over 20 years, it's, it's all, it's sometimes friendships, right. And it's been sometimes it's work relationships and really, um, you know, I'm very self-reflective and very honest with myself. So, you know, being all of that is what led me to this work that I'm doing at, um, with Goso. Um, it's led me throughout my career. And I always tell people like, you know, having difficult conversations, being honest, um, understanding my limitations, understanding the limitations that have been set for me as an African-American woman um, has also helped to propel me. Um, and that is so, you know, I, I feel extremely, I feel extremely um, successful because I have the opportunities to be who I am all the time and I'm not chasing or seeking um, others confirmation of who I am. But this took a really long time. It, it just, you know, I really, I tell my sons when we talk about this and I talk about, you know, um, you know, self-worth and um, having confidence and, um, you know, um, balancing that with humility um, that it's something that I've only been able to accomplish in the last, you know, 10 years of my life. And it's just how I live my life every day. 
I love all of that. I mean, that's a lot of what I am trying to practice and trying to improve on and trying to encourage the freckled foodie community to do as well. I like you, I don't have a filter. I'm very transparent. I wear my emotions on my sleeve. If I'm not happy, you know it right away. Um, but I say what I'm thinking and it's definitely gotten me in trouble many of times, especially as a child. But it also, I think, has allowed me to have really honest and loyal and respectful relationships with people I care about. And it's a two way street. And, you know, I, I'm still working on the, doing what I want to do for me rather than society standards or, you know, society's goals. But I agree it is a journey and it's a long one. And I'm curious. Yeah, it's a long one. Um, When you defined success in the beginning, you talked about happiness. And for me, I feel, I would say the most happy when I feel as if I'm doing good Mm -hmm. and I feel like my my purpose is the most clear when I feel what I'm doing is positively impacting or helping others. And that's why I like to have this podcast to have hard conversations that can hopefully help educate or inform other people on these topics. And I'm curious, do you feel that sense of, you must feel, I don't mean to impose this on you, but you must feel that sense of happiness and fulfillment by having such a clear positive impact on these people's lives that you are assisting when they are released from these facilities? I do. I think that, so, you know, just to give a little bit of background, you know, I, um, I came on as, and was appointed the CEO and president of um, GOSO in January of this year. Mm -hmm. Um, And as you know, March, then the pandemic hit and we were home and, um, you know, so this has been a really interesting time to be leading this organization. Absolutely. Um, I had been the chief administrative officer at the Brooklyn Navy Yard Development Corporation in Brooklyn for eight years before that. And in my work, um, I started out as the head of human resources um, and ended up in this role where I was overseeing several departments. But one of the areas that I was overseeing that was the most meaningful to me was workforce development. And in that um, in that role, what we did was that we were connecting the community um, to opportunities on the Brooklyn Navy Yard. The Brooklyn Navy Yard has over um, 500 businesses or 600 businesses when I left, and really thinking about creatively or really holistically, how do we make sure that the people who live around the yard that included um, three New York City housing complexes um, mm-hmm. are connected to the work that's on the yard and um, connected to all of the um, economic vitality there. And so as I was, you know, doing that work, what was most important to me is that, you know, we were not only connecting people to roles um, on the yard, but that they were sustainable and that there was retention. So as I was like, as I was, I would say ending, but I wasn't ending, but as I was thinking about my career and what I wanted to do next, I knew that I wanted to run a nonprofit. And as I really dug deep into myself, I understood that I wanted to run a nonprofit that was focused on equity for people of color and particularly young men of color. Um, as a mother of two young young men, 26 mm-hmm. and 21, and they're African-American and understanding their place in the world, but you know, also understanding my place in the world, I knew that there, I wanted to do work around bringing a voice to um, young men of color. 
And, and because I believe that, you know, in many instances, they're very much, there's a lot of marginalization and, you know, systemic racism and, you know, implicit biases, like, you know, you and I were talking earlier that they experience and what that means to um, our communities, our families. And it was just really, it really, um, it, it really just kind of hit me that this is the work that I need to be doing. So um, when I heard about um, Goso and the role there, I knew that that was the job for me, right? Like these young men that we serve are between the ages of 16 and 24. Um, they have been justice involved. Many of them have gone to prison. Many of them have been detained for really long periods of time in the local jails because they couldn't post bail um, while they were going through their um, through their trials. Um, and, you know, they, they've all have suffered through quite a bit of trauma and all the barriers that go along with just being um, African-American or Latinx American in, um, in New York City and, um, and, and having some criminal involvement. So I, yeah, the work that I do brings me so much happiness because a lot of what I'm doing is trying to figure out or creating programmings along with my amazing team that impact their lives and help, as you said, to connect them to employment, but also working on their emotional well-being and also connecting them to education opportunities. So GOSO kind of has a three-pronged approach that is about um, dealing with you know their emotional needs, their employment needs, and their education needs, and doing this in a really um, robust way. Um, and, and working with them in order to help them to achieve their goals and has seen a lot of success in that area. And so I, um, yeah, so the work that I do does bring me a, a lot of happiness um, and I feel fulfilled every single day after I, after I finish working. I'm sure. And it's so incredible and so admirable. And I mean, as I said in the beginning of this episode, it's work that is really impactful and you are so single-handedly having such a great impact on these people's lives. And something you touched on when you just mentioned the three-prong approach. So for context, I know I mentioned this to you before we started recording, but for those listening, I've, I've talked about it in a few different times over the years, but on this topic specifically, I grew up thinking, you know, a jail is a jail. You go to jail if you're a criminal and then that's it. And I didn't really think much more of it. You know, I'm not surrounded. I'm not, I don't live near a jail. I, I've never like been in the context of someone who's been in jail. And so it was never something I really thought of, which I realized is a privilege to begin with. And it wasn't until my senior year of college at Lafayette, there is a class um, led by a professor, Dr. Bonnie, and it's called Women in the Criminal Justice System, and we actually go to the prison in our town, Easton, Pennsylvania, and we spend time with women who are in the minimum security area of that prison. And as a class, we are considered outside students, and the women in the facility are considered inside students. They're never referred to as inmates. And we're learning alongside each other, and Dr. Bonnie is teaching us. And it was such an eye-opening experience for me. I mean, it single-handedly changed the way I view a lot of aspects of life and the way I reflect on my college education. And 
I think the the main takeaway for me was well, there were so many, but it, there were probably I think six of us outside students and eight maybe inside students. It obviously varied because some of them were released during the course. It was a whole semester and some new students joined. And the way that it starts is we walk into the common area of the um, facility and we just go up to these women and we say, hey, we're doing a class in the rec room or whatever the room was called. Um, It'll be every week for two hours at this time, do you want to join us? We're going to learn about the criminal justice system. And some woman looked at us like, who the fuck are you? What are you doing in here? Why are you asking me if I want to join your class? Mm-hmm. Which I understand. And then some women were like, yeah, sure, why not? And it honestly, it wasn't even a class. It was a therapy session. We would sit and talk and it was all conversational based. I mean, we would cry. We would like hold each other and cry. And it was so eye-opening for me to A, be in the presence of these women who were in jail and realize they're just like me. It's just Mm -hmm. something happened. And also, we all have very similar fears. And I wrote my final paper on this because the last class, it was my senior spring. I was about to graduate and I was an emotional wreck over it. I have a big fear of the unknown. It's a main anxiety trigger for me. And we were all sitting there talking and the woman next to me was an inside student and she was new there. And she was just like, I'm so afraid of what my life is about to be. I've, it's my first week here. I don't know what this holds. I don't know what this entails. I've never been to jail before. She's crying. I'm sitting here. And, you know, I obviously realize all feelings are valid. We're all in different situations. And I'm crying because I'm about to graduate college. And even though I have this amazing life set up for me, I'm fucking scared. And the woman to the right of me, who's an inside student, is about to be released. And she's petrified because she doesn't know if her Mm -hmm. family will still love her. She doesn't know what the outside world is like. She doesn't know what to expect. And we all just held each other and cried because Mm -hmm. we connected so deeply and profoundly on this fear of the unknown. And when I left that class, I remember thinking how if I lived in a different area, if I came from different financial circumstances, if my skin color was black, I could have easily been one of those women. There are things I've done that are outwardly illegal, but Mm -hmm. I've just never been charged for anything. And I mean, also just the fact that when they're then released, they were telling me how they have to pay rent for the nights that they were in jail, basically. And if they can't make those payments, then they are potentially going to have to go back. The whole system is so, so beyond messed up in, I think, both of our opinions. We can agree on that. Um, But my biggest takeaway was that there was never a focus on the mental health of these women. And there was never assistance. There was no therapy. There was no, hey, how can we help you get a job when you leave here? Because you're going to have, you kind of have this scarlet letter. You know, there's that box you have to check off. Are you, have you been arrested? Um, and I just, I, I couldn't wrap my mind around how that wasn't something that prisons or jails were focused on when yeah. mental health plays such a massive role and probably why they're even there to begin with. Exactly. I think that I just want to just tap on a couple of things and I want to, it's so funny what you talked about. And I think that's so, it's so important for um, people from different backgrounds and different um, demographics to engage with other people from different backgrounds mm-hmm. and demographics. And I, and I tell this to a lot of folks, right? Like when I tell my story, so I am a third generation African-American um, 
college graduate. And that's huge in the African-American community, especially at my age. My sons Mm -hmm. are generation college graduate, African-American. And, um, you know, I struggled with and I lived through a lot of um, profound instability. And it's only going back to what I said earlier about um, um, about happiness It's only recently that I started telling this story out loud when I sit on panels, whenever I have an opportunity to speak, because I think sometimes as um, African-American um, people, um, we sometimes think that we have to come across as different, right? And those of us who come from, you know, middle-class backgrounds, um, we tend to think that we have to make sure that people who don't look like us understand that we are the other, we are different types of Black people other than, you know, than those mm-hmm. that are living in poor social economic um environments. And what I recognize is that we're doing a disservice, not only to those um, people that we look like that we can tell our story, but also to ourselves, right? Because what I, what I find is that as an African-American woman, even though I come from this, you know, long lineage of educated, you know, middle-class people, what I, what I also discovered is that my lived experience isn't much different than those of mothers who live in poor um, in poor um, neighborhoods or that deal with these. Or I live in actually I live in Bedford Stuyvesant, so I live in a neighborhood that is very impacted by these issues. Um, but what I what I find is that my lived experience is very similar, right? Like I still worry every day about my sons going out into the community. Um, mm-hmm. I still worry about them being either you know targets, victims of crime, um, victims of um, victims of police brutality. I worry about that every single day, just like those mothers have. I have to, you know, and I also say this, is that every man that is the most important person in my life, you know, my father, my son, my husbands, um, have all had some engagement with the criminal justice system that I truly know that if they were not Black men, they would not have had. Right. And, you know, and this is, and I'm talking about, you know, middle-class children. And these are, and these are people that, you know, when you hear like you and I, like you were just saying, there are things that, you know, other people have done that have been equally as um, criminal, but they were like rites of passage in their life. And, Mm -hmm. you know, they were things that they would have been slapped on the hand for, you know? And so understanding that, my lived experience is very similar to the lived experience of the mothers of the young men that I that I serve at um, at Goso, and so I, I I really think there's so much value in the the sharing piece that you you spoke about, right? And that you're able to share that I have these insecurities. So just because I seem like I have all this privilege doesn't mean that I don't have the same insecurities that you have. And then for you to be able to recognize that in someone else. Um, but the stigmas that go with being formerly incarcerated go beyond just what you're like, you're talking about, like the things they have to live with, the checking off the box, which, which thankfully in most states, or at least in New York City or New York State, you don't have to check off anymore. Um, it's also, it's also the issues around leaving without, um, leaving without identification, not, you know, not having a place to stay. Um, mm-hmm. You know, there's just so many other things that make it difficult to have good outcomes when you are, when you're formally incarcerated. And that's why I'm so proud of the work 
that GoSo does, right? And that I'm so proud of the support that we get from our board and the action board, which your sister sits on, um, because, you know, these young men need a lot of real resources that we're able to provide that bring stability because instability in any part of your life bring, brings instability in every part of your life, right? So if you can't get a Metro card, you can't get to work. And we, we provide Metro cards. If you don't have a place where you can deal with your, um, with your anger issues that were brought on because of, you know, being incarcerated because of other trauma, you're going to have issues with that in other areas of your life. So, you know, the work that GOSO does, like at its core, is around working with the whole person and then connecting them to all of these other resources and then making sure that they have the things that make them stable. So um, I really appreciate it, you know, what you said about, you know, mental illness, because, you know, there is incarceration induced mental illness. Right. Of course there is. So, you know, there is that. And, you know, and there and there is um, trauma induced mental illness. And if we're not dealing if we're not as a society understanding that and not dealing with like what mass incarceration does for the long term, not just to these young people or these, I'm saying young people because we serve young people, but not just to the people that are being incarcerated, what it does to our communities, you're putting people back out who might've, who might've been incarcerated, um, and they were, you know, moderately healthy, right? But then you're putting them into a system that is broken, so broken. Mm-hmm. And then you're putting them back out there worse than they, when they went in. And so I, I think that, you know, having organizations like GOSO that really has a, it has a social work foundation and that they're working with the whole person is so key to, um, to their success along with having a along with trying to impact um, policy and you know being out there having and having these kinds of conversations so that we're um, actually educating those who um, may not understand that you know um, people that are you know people that are people are people and people who have experienced um, incarceration or have experienced um, some kind of interaction with the criminal justice system are people just like you and I right and I think for outsiders it's so easy to just be like oh god they're a criminal oh god and and label them with that word and be afraid almost and obviously there are people who do horrid acts in this country Mm -hmm. that's not ignored. However, I don't think it's ever acknowledged for the people who are going into these systems for especially like minor charges, the ripple effect. I mean, there's so much to unpack because not only is it, okay, well, what financial state were you born into? Because if if you're not, you know, I think it was, I was listening to, a podcast when 50 Cent was on Dak Shepard's podcast. And he's like, I grew up in a house and I had no money. The only way I could make money was selling drugs on the street. So of course I'm going to do that. I need to support my mother. Mm-hmm. And it's what financial state are you born into? What color is your skin? Because I've read mixed statistics and I'm sure you would know more on the actual facts than I do given your role, but it's either one in three or one in four black of every black male 
will spend time in the criminal justice system. I've seen one in three and I've seen one in four recently. So I'm not sure which one it is, but either one is insane to actually think about. And so it's what financial state were you born into? What area were you born into? What type of suburb or neighborhood? What color is your skin? And then who did you end up spending your time with? Because did you maybe spend time with a group of kids at a young age who then started getting involved in things that maybe you didn't want to get involved in, but you're suddenly tied to them and then you're just in the wrong place, wrong time. And you end up in this system that basically chews you up, breaks you down, yeah. beats you up physically and mentally yeah. and then just releases you and is like, all right, go figure out your life. Yeah. And like, how could anyone leave that system feeling mentally stable, be able to succeed in their life with finding a job, reconnecting with family where we also haven't mentioned not only is this impacting the people that are being put into the system, but all of these families who are therefore also being broken up and then children who are being raised without one of their parent and the impact it's having on them. It's just, there's such a ripple down effect that I don't think is unpacked or acknowledged enough by especially the white society who lives with privilege, whether it's white privilege or financial privilege and is just so far removed from this that they're not thinking about it. And that's really why I want to have this conversation on here so that more people can start to think about it. Because these people are just like you and me and every, like, they're just in a shitty situation that they found themselves in. And it's somehow written off the rest Mm -hmm. of your life. And in my opinion, that's just fucking bullshit. Yeah. Sorry. I just got very emotional. And and so I so appreciate that you're saying that because, you know, you have to understand and the probation and parole system are flawed, right? And they Mm -hmm. don't. And the idea that, you know, if, if many times with the young men that I serve and, you know, and just, and just also like talking about differences is that I do not, I mean, I started out my college career, um, went to college in Connecticut at Southern Connecticut and I started, I majored in um, sociology and I worked in probation um, as my internship. And that was my first entree to anything that had to do with the criminal justice system, right? Like I had never, I knew nothing about the criminal justice system. Mm-hmm. I don't have anyone in my family who has ever been incarcerated. And, you know, we all have our own implicit biases, right? Like you think that that's just them. Like it's not, it's not my family. And understanding that it's that is not the case. And when you read and when you get to know the young men that we serve, and sometimes they have done, you know, crimes that are, like you said, like, um, you know, um, selling drugs or, you know, maybe getting, having an assault, maybe they got into some kind of beef with someone outside, right? And they're, mm-hmm. and they are, they feel unsafe or there's, you know, there's turf wars. There's all kinds of things that that people are dealing with every single day that those of us who were not born in a certain circumstance, as you said, we are not dealing with, right? So, you know, you could look at somebody's um, record and they would say, oh, they, you know, it was attempted murder. And I'm not saying that they don't need um, rehabilitation, right? And and I'm not saying that, you know, what constitutes um, burglary or what constitutes these things, they're very different, right? And a lot of them do have to do with life, life circumstances. But when you're putting them into a system that is not rehabilitative, rehabilitative at all, right? That's not what that system does, right? It's just right. about punishment and putting them in there, right? That's my issue with the with with mass incarceration in the prison system. And the other piece is that when someone has has paid their dues and they have done their time, you know, we need to understand that if these young men that have paid their dues and have done their time and they 
they can be violated because they're using marijuana. Of course, hopefully that's going to change with the laws changing. Mm-hmm. But that's an issue that you can be put back into prison because you are using marijuana or because at times, you know, in the past, because you jumped the turnstile and, you know, you might be trying to get your, pro- your probation, your probation appointment. My, my point is that this country really needs to look more deeply. And we as citizens need to understand more about what these things, who these people are who are being incarcerated, what's happening during incarceration, and what happens once they, you know, pay their debt to society, what happens then once they continue to be on probation? Because oftentimes probation does not have the the resources um, in order to really help um, those that um, that they're serving um, and that their only their only recourse is a violation right like oh you're mm-hmm. you know, this is an issue so I, I think that it's so important for um, these kinds of conversations and I, and I appreciate your understanding of what is actually happening and what and there's so many things that we could do better because I don't care if you jump the turnstile you know 600 times, you should not be incarcerated in a system that is not going to work with you to help you to understand why you can't do that. And I'm not saying, you know, I don't think that maybe they shouldn't be jumping the, the turnstiles. But when you look at a country right now where with everything going on between the pandemic and the unrest, that over 50 percent of African-Americans are unemployed. And like you mm-hmm. said, what do you expect people to do? Right. We need to create more resources, more opportunities for um, connecting um, people to employment. We need to create more opportunities to connect people to education so that they can have better incomes. And this can be done, right? This can be done. And um, it's the work that we're doing at GOSO, but it takes, you know, it takes um, structure, creativity. It takes it takes involvement from corporate America. Um, it takes commitment and um, it takes having, like you said, an open heart and understanding that someone should not have to live forever with their last mistake. They should not exactly. Have. That's very well said. I've never heard it put that way that someone should not have to live forever with their last mistake because it's true. And what you said is a topic I want to focus a whole other episode on with someone because you know your comment of just someone's potentially reincarcerated for smoking marijuana. I did a poll on my Instagram stories, knowing that majority of my um, viewers and participants are white, and I asked how many of you smoke weed because I openly smoke weed, and yeah. I realized the privilege that I'm even doing this, even though it's technically not legal in New York or New Jersey, and. I asked how many of you smoke weed and majority of people said yes. I said how many people how of those people who said yes, how many of you live in a state where it's legal? Majority said no. And then I went as far as to say how many of you have done coke? And I think it was majority had said yes. And then I said how many of you have been arrested? And it was like 3%. And with that 3%, I was getting DMs that said by the way, like I was arrested quote unquote But I mean, all charges were dropped and it was for like a drinking ticket and it was just kind of like written off and they slapped my wrist. And I had a similar situation. I was taken in a cop car to a police station and all I had to do was call my parents. And I ran from the police and I basically like complained to them and bitched at them the entire ride. And for me, it's like, I don't think people are so, I don't think people are aware of the fact that things that 
specifically white people are doing constantly without even thinking about it are things that are incarcerating these people we're talking about. And, you know, at the beach, we will walk from our house down to the beach with drinks in our hands and I won't think twice about it. And the other weekend I turned to my husband and I was like, this is the shit that shows white privilege. We aren't even considering the fact that we could potentially get pulled over or arrested for an open container. I, you know, will openly smoke weed on our backyard. I'm like, again, nothing, like we've never thought once about potential police involvement in this. And I also think that people need to unpack the system that has been created over the past few decades. If you, if you are really looking at statistics of the, incarceration rate in our country, which is unparalleled to any other country out there. And you even look at the war on drugs that started majority of this. It was a system built to arrest black people. They basically said, okay, here's this, these two different forms of the same exact drug, Mm -hmm. crack and powder cocaine. cocaine. Who's doing the cocaine, the rich white bankers or Mm -hmm. people clubbing and who's smoking the less expensive version of crack cocaine, the people in the black communities. Okay, well then let's up those charges so that we can go arrest all of those people and put them in this broken system and just slap the rich white people who are snorting coke on the wrist. And that, I don't think people, like I just don't think this topic is even talked about enough for people to recognize the privilege that exists with decisions they're making and also the inherent biases that you're placing on these people who you've labeled criminals for doing acts similar to things that you're doing every day. I love that you did that. I think that you, you definitely need to do this like in another um, podcast because this can go forever. And I think a lot of people who are white almost use these stories as like laughing points kind of less DUIs, but you know what I said where I was underage drinking and you know, up until recently, I've always kind of told it as a joke without realizing the privilege that was involved in me not actually getting in trouble. And, you know, my dad has a story of when he was in high school, they were, they were trying to steal some statue off of someone's yard. And then they went in the garage and then the guy shut the garage and they got taken to jail and he called his stepdad and his stepdad was like, I'm not coming to pick you up. And so he spent the night in jail, but it's a joke when he tells it. It's not, a serious thing that changed his life because of the color of our skin. It did not put us in this broken system that would have then changed the rest of our lives. You know what I mean? And I think, I just think there has to be a lot more awareness on that from specifically white people when we're having these conversations, instead of laughing it off, like, and thinking about all the times you got away with things, realizing the privilege of why you got away with things, and then figuring out, okay, how can I help the people that didn't get away with the same things that I was doing? Exactly, exactly. And also, how do you, and as we said earlier, and how do you move on after a mistake? And Mm -hmm. how do you make sure that people are able to have full lives after they made a mistake and they paid their debt? Yes. And so for the people who are listening who have now learned about GOSO and are more interested in this topic, I would obviously, first and foremost, if you want to learn more on this topic, I would recommend watching the documentary on Netflix 13th and also reading The New Jim Crow. But I'm curious, from a GOSO standpoint, what is the best way for people to assist in what's happening and what has happened? You know, I whether it's volunteering with GOSO once 
COVID is kind of no longer an issue and we can attend events, but how can people listening help this broken system? I think that's so for to get involved with GOSO is like definitely visit our um, website at gosonyc.org. Um, I would also say that there are volunteer opportunities, um, even during um, the remote learning, um, the remote po- um, period. We are, um, we are, there are volunteer opportunities to work with our participants on resume writing, interview skills. Um, there are opportunities for speaking engagements. Um, and also once this, you know, once the stay at home order is over and we're able to all convene again, there'll be opportunities to come into our space and volunteer as well. Um, we have a gala that will be, um, that will be um, a virtual gala this year on September 22nd. We definitely would love to see folks come and hear more about GOSO and hear from our participants and our founder and also other people who really care about this, um, this issue um, mm-hmm. on September 22nd. So um, there's a lot of different ways to get involved, but um, definitely the best place to start is at our website at gosonyc.org. And all of that will be in the show notes. I've attended the gala in person. It's an incredible event. So I will definitely be in the virtual one. But also for anyone listening, once the stay at home is lifted next year, the in-person gala, we're going to get together a little freckled foodie table or something like that, because it's really an incredible experience. And it really puts what we just talked about into perspective when you're hearing from these young men and really learning about their experiences and what they've been through. And Hearing it firsthand, I do think has even greater of an impact. So Jocelyn, I am so grateful for what you're doing. I'm so incredibly grateful for having you on here. I do have to bring it back to food for our last question. Um, But what would be the three ways to your heart through food? You know, it's it's such a difficult question because I really enjoy fine dining and have um, really a sophisticated palate. But when it comes to my heart... Um, the three ways to bring, um, to, to get to my heart through food are just really simple and basic is that I love, um, I love pizza, um, especially anchovy and onion pizza. Um, that is, you had me at pizza, but you lost me at those topics. Yeah, I love, I love, yeah, I love anchovies and onions. Um, I fried chicken. I could, I've never seen a piece of fried chicken that I can't eat. Um, mm-hmm me happy um with hot sauce and um a hamburger i i really i i i love a good hamburger so love a burger in my heart through um food i love all of those i was always i've always loved fried chicken and i am gluten-free as of like i guess two, three years ago. And that's just something that like, I never really see a gluten-free option made very often. And at our rehearsal dinner for our wedding, we wanted to do kind of like a, we used to do um, like pig roasts in my backyard growing up. We would have them every year. And we really wanted to do that style of meal for our family style rehearsal dinner. And so we had like a full pig roast, baked beans, cornbread and fried chicken and the venue made gluten-free fried chicken. And I have never been so excited over a meal in my life. I sat down the night before my wedding and just pounded a full plate. I was so happy. I couldn't stop eating. So that, that whole meal is honestly one of my happy meals as well. I love it. 
Well, thank you so much for joining us. Um, all of the GOSO information will be in the show notes for anyone listening who wants to learn more and get involved. Please do. I highly recommend it. I really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to speak with us on this topic. And I'm so grateful and appreciative of all the work you're doing. Thank you for having me. Of course. Thank you all so much for listening to today's episode of Freckled Foodie and Friends. I thoroughly hope you enjoyed it. If you could be so kind, I would greatly appreciate a rate and or review on whatever platform you use to listen to your podcast. Currently, this one's available on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play. Please subscribe to make sure you're up to date with new episodes coming at you every Friday morning. If once a week isn't enough of me, please follow along on my most active social channel, Instagram. Find me, my unedited videos, recipes, random rants, and info for all my other social channels on there at Freckled Foodie.